I suspect some of you in here are myopic this morning, that uh, you are nearsighted. You see things that are close up, but you can't see things that are far away. Uh, all these conditions can be, of course, corrected with lenses and glasses. Uh, or some of you uh, might be hyperopic, which is the opposite. You're farsighted. You can see things far away, but you can't see things close. Some of you might also have a touch of astigmatism. Astigmatism, suffice it to say, is another distortion of our vision. If you've got astigmatism, it looks like sometimes you have halos or haze around lights at night, or you may see things that are supposed to be straight up, and they may appear to be a bit tilted. Um, some people are colorblind. There are no glasses that can fix that. And I always feel sorry for people who are colorblind at this beautiful season of the year. As we get older, our eyes uh, become presbyopic, which means that we need readers. You know, you used to be able to read clearly, now you can't read clearly, you need it magnified because of the light and everything else, and so we start wearing reading glasses. Or we start wearing bifocals, where you have the upper part being for either your farsightedness or nearsightedness, and the bottom part simply being for uh, your um, uh, inability to read. Uh, Hollywood today is promoting 3D movies, which when you go to the theater to watch one, you are given a pair of glasses that makes everything have this three-dimensional effect. It's pretty cool. And keeping it all straight at times can be a little bit challenging. I am nearsighted. I also have astigmatism. And now I need readers uh, to read because of my age, and I wear contacts. So a couple years ago, I, I went to monovision, which means I've got a contact in my right eye for distance vision. I have a contact in my left eye for close-up reading. And shortly after I got my monovision, Elsie and I went to see a 3D movie at the theater, and by the time I got out of there, I wasn't sure what world I was in, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> it was confusing. And then I sometimes, because I wear contacts, uh, when I'm working with woodworking tools in, in, in the basement, I'll put on a pair of these. Now, this is no fashion statement, I'm here to tell you, as you can see. They look kind of goofy, but they're called safety glasses, and they kind of protect all around the eye so that you're safe. Nothing harms you. The dust and the bits of shavings don't get through to penetrate the eye. I'm telling you, I think our ability to see is one of God's great gifts to us in life. And, and the complexity of the eye, the irreducible complexity of the eye, is one of those things that points to a great designer. But I think God gave us sight also for the spiritual analogy. What the eyes are to the body, God's vision is for the soul. And unfortunately, there aren't spiritual glasses or lenses or even LASIK surgery that God can give us that will correct some of our spiritual poor sight. For, for instance, some folks suffer with spiritual nearsightedness. They only focus on what's close to them, mainly themselves. Everybody else and everybody else's problems are a, are a distant blur. On the other side of the coin, there are some who suffer with spiritual farsightedness. They easily focus on everybody else's issues and problems. It's just that they can't see their own problems clear, close up. Some have spiritual astigmatism. Their understanding of life is distorted, hazy, and tilted at best. Some are spiritually colorblind. They only see things in black and white, and their black and white is the only black and white that really matters, if you catch my drift. Some seem to always be wearing spiritual bifocals vacillating between views that they can never quite latch onto. Two philosophies, two spiritual perspectives. They just never land on one or the other. 
And then there are those whose lives are spent wearing spiritual safety glasses. Doesn't help their vision one bit, but it keeps them safe. They don't have to take any risks. They don't have to do anything dangerous for their faith. Should God ever decide to give us spiritual glasses? I hope he gives us 3D glasses so that we can see the world with the depth of his own vision. If we could learn to see this world around us as God sees the world around us, I think it would change who we are. It would change what we do. It would change where we are going. And that's what this series is, is all about, really. It's about our vision for the future, that God would unleash us to see tomorrow as he sees tomorrow, to become who he wants us to be, to be unleashed from the burdens that we carry now so that we can be free to serve as he wants us to serve. Now, I want us to take a look at this through the lens of the Hebrew nation in the book of Exodus. Now, we're not going to go through Exodus over the next few weeks in, in its entirety, but we're going to go through what happened with the Jewish people in, in some of their high watermarks, some of their high moments in life. But to really understand how the book of Exodus starts, you have to understand how the book of Genesis closes. And so the grand story of Genesis ends with the powerful story of Joseph. And I've told you this before, but Joseph is one of my all-time favorite Bible characters. Perhaps you remember him. He's this young man who was capable of interpreting dreams. God gave him that incredible gift of interpreting dreams. The only problem was that when he told his brothers about the dreams, they understood him to be over them, to be their controller, and they hated him for it. And then dad, Jacob, who loved Joseph more than all the rest of his sons, gave him that wonderful special coat, whether it was a coat of many colors or it was a coat with long sleeves. We're not sure exactly what it was, but it was special. Nobody else in the family got one like it, and his brothers hated him even more, so much so. That one day when he came out to check on them while they were taking care of the flocks out in the fields, the brothers conspired and they took him and they sold him to a band of Ishmaelites going into Egypt who in turn sold this young man into slavery with an Egyptian master by the name of Potiphar. Here Joseph goes in one day from being the favorite son to being the enslaved foreigner in the home of a new master. It's not long until he's accused of seducing the master's wife, when in actuality it was just the opposite. But he's thrown into prison for something he didn't do, and he spends the next 13 years in an Egyptian prison. It's not until Pharaoh himself has this dream, two dreams as a matter of fact, that he can't figure out, he can't explain, and nobody in Egypt can explain them either. That Somebody says, you know, there's this kid in prison who can interpret dreams, and they go get Joseph, and Joseph appears before the Pharaoh. The Pharaoh tells him the dream, and Joseph said, well, I can't give the interpretation, but God can, and through me, he'll give you the answer, and here it is. You saw seven fat cows come out of the river, and they were eaten up by seven skinny, scrawny cows. And you saw seven plump heads of grain devoured by seven scrawny heads of grain. The, the answer is simple, Pharaoh. There will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And then, without skipping a beat, folks, Joseph goes from being an interpreter of dreams to a vision caster. I want you to notice this in Genesis chapter 41. It begins with the word, therefore, okay, Pharaoh, in light of these dreams and in light of what I've just told you, therefore, 
Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so that there will be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Now, Joseph, I am so grateful for what Joseph does here. When Pharaoh says, will you be that man? Uh, Joseph could just as easily have said, thanks, but no thanks. I have just spent 13 years in an Egyptian prison. I haven't seen my family for, for that period of time. I just want to go home. Good luck with the plan. Now, I'm here to tell you, had Joseph left, without working the plan. There would have been no plan in Egypt because nobody else in Egypt understood the dreams. Nobody else in Egypt believed what the dreams were saying. Had Joseph left and there had been no plan, the famine would have killed not only all of the Egyptians, but it would have killed the people in the land of Canaan too who also had no food. That's where Joseph's family was. And had Jacob's family died, there would not have been a Hebrew nation. Had there been no Hebrew nation, there would have been no Jesus Christ. Had there been no Jesus Christ... You get it, don't you? We wouldn't be here today and we would be hopelessly lost in a broken world without anticipation that anything could ever be better. You see, this isn't just some ancient dried up story about a past faith. This is our story. This is our legacy. This is the past that we're celebrating because it points us in a vision to where we are going tomorrow. Within the next 10 years, Joseph's family comes because there's no food in Canaan. And his brothers come, and there's this, this wonderful picture of forgiveness in there. And then the whole family moves down, 70 of them move down from Canaan, and Joseph is able to settle them all in the land of Goshen, which was this lush, beautiful pasture ground in Egypt. And there they weathered the devastation of the famine because Egypt was the only place in the whole region that had food because of Joseph. However, instead of leaving after the famine was over and moving on toward God's promise, they decided to simply stay put. You know, it's pretty good here in Goshen. And by the time Joseph himself died, his family had already been in Egypt some 70 years. That's 20 more years than what we've been in Bloomington. Now, fast forward. That's how Genesis ends. Fast forward to the first verse of Exodus. In between the last word of Genesis and the first word of Exodus, there is a silence of 330 years. Do you realize how long that is? 331 years ago, William Penn had just settled the colony that bears his name today, Pennsylvania, 1681. That's a long time ago. God is silent. The, the people are silent. The, the history is silent for 330 years, and we pick up the story, and amazingly, when you begin reading, the Hebrew people are still in Goshen 400 years after they came to this place. That's a long time. Here's another bit of news. Egypt isn't happy about them being there still. They're getting pretty upset. As a matter of fact, let's read in Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 and following. It says, eventually a new king came to power in Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. And he said to his people, look. 
the people of Israel now outnumber us and are stronger than we are. We must make a plan to keep them from growing even more. If we don't, and if war breaks out and they will join our enemies and fight against us, then they will escape from the country. So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves. They appointed brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down with crushing labor. They forced them to build the cities of Python and Ramses as centers for the king, as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread, and the more the alarmed the Egyptians became. So the Egyptians worked the people of Israel without mercy. They made their lives bitter, forcing them to mix mortar and make bricks and do all the work in the fields, and they were ruthless in all of their demands. What in the world has just happened? The Bible is silent for those three centuries and suddenly the Israelites go from this comfortable, beautiful, lush pastor to, to being slaves under the ruthless Egyptian taskmasters. Now, now, I'll tell you what I believe has happened during those 330 years between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. I believe that the Israelites became complacent. They lost their God-given vision and became satisfied with life in the wrong place. Now, don't forget about this. Keep this in mind through the story. The Israelites were never destined for life in Egypt. They were destined for life in a land of God's promise. God had a plan that he had revealed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that grand plan of transforming the world by being the people through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed through the birth of the Savior, that grand vision had been lost in the lush pasture lands of Goshen. The Israelites forgot who they were. They forgot why they existed. They were just visitors there, but they started thinking of Egypt as home. And they, only, they weren't the only ones to forget. Pharaoh forgot. Now, he was several Pharaohs removed from the Pharaoh that worked with Joseph, but by that time, he'd forgot his Egyptian history, and instead of favoring them, he became fearful of them. He became fearful of what they could do and become, and so he enslaved them, and suddenly the complacent Israelites find themselves as captive Israelites. God tell you, complacency is so dangerous. For the Israelites, their complacency brought about the contempt of Egypt. Complacency, as it's defined, is a smug self-satisfaction. It is tranquil pleasure. Complacency breeds laziness, results in idleness, and leads to a loss of vision. Have you, heard, have you ever heard the modern parable about the duck that was uh, winging his way over the beautiful autumn countryside uh, when he spotted a, a barnyard with tame ducks down below? And so he leaves the flock falls out of the formation and lands there to discover that, hey, these farm ducks don't have it so bad. They've got lots of corn. So he stayed for an hour. That became a day. That became a week. That became a one month. That became the whole summer. Then one crisp autumn morning, wild ducks flew over their heads, their calls beckoning him to follow. The sound of those ducks stirred him, and he began to flap his wings, and he lifted off of the ground, but all that corn had made him soft and heavy, and he was never able to get any higher than the peak of the barn roof. With all of his efforts, he could not gain the altitude to join them, so he soared back down and landed in the barnyard and reasoned, my life's not so bad. It's safe here, and the food is really good. With every passing 
passing autumn, the sound of the wild ducks grew fainter in his memory until he could no longer hear their call at all. Without realizing it, he had become a creature of captivity. That's complacency. That's what happened to the Israelites. And the same thing can happen to us, the church, if we aren't careful. When we become spiritually complacent, when we get too comfortable, we become captive to our comfort, captive to our fears, captive to our lack of vision. And with every passing season, the call of God grows fainter until we cannot hear it anymore. God, help us never to become a complacent church. So what happened to the Israelites in captivity? Well, one good thing grew out of that, and that is that they found a united vision. You see, when everything is comfortable, you can go and do whatever you want to, but all of a sudden, when the bottom falls out of life and you find yourself captive, the first thing you want to do is be unleashed. You want to be free. You want the yoke of captivity thrown off, and everybody came to the same vision and conclusion. We want to be free. And so God used that captivity to bring them to where they needed to be. And suddenly they shared a common vision once again of where God was going to take them. They realized, hey, Egypt really isn't our home after all. And the Bible says they did four things. It says they prayed, Exodus chapter 2, verses 23 and following, talked about the fact that they continued to groan and lift up their voice to God, and God heard their cries. They prayed. And it says, then they grew stronger in Exodus 1, verse 12. It says, but the more the Egyptian oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. They didn't just turn tail and run. They, they grew stronger. Third thing is that they persevered. Even though they were treated ruthlessly, they never gave up. And number four, they trusted God for a future they could not see with human eyes. They got a vision of what could be if God would save them. I got to tell you, God has been ever so good to me. And I know in your life, as I look out here in this assembly, God has been ever so good to you. I've been in some places around the world where life is tough, and, and I don't think any of us would understand it as it is in other places. Our lives are, well, we just have it good. And the problem with so many wonderful blessings like that is it's easy to become complacent. And so in this 50th year of our congregation's journey, it's time for us to lay aside the comfort and to step up and to do something great for the Lord. You see, it's time for us to recapture our vision for tomorrow. Where we have, and while we're celebrating 50 years, I want you to know this, it isn't where we've been that is nearly as important as where we are headed. Let me say that again. Where we have been isn't nearly as important as where we are headed. It's time that we, the church, remember who we are. It's time to remember that we are God's people committed to his vision for our lives and our futures. It's time to remember why we are here. And can I remind you that like the Hebrews in Egypt, we are not destined for life in this world. We've been destined for life in a far greater place, which is why nothing here ever fully satisfies. The second law of thermodynamics reminds us that everything in the universe presses on, progresses toward decay. I don't need that law to tell me that. Every day my body tells me that everything is pressing onward to decay. But it's also why things here don't satisfy us. 
the cell phone that's waiting down your pocket right now that you waited an hour in line for hours six months ago to buy now feels like outdated technology. You're carrying around something that's, uh, well, it's, it, it, it's obsolete. I really need the new stuff. You see, six months, we can't even be satisfied. Before the new car even loses its new car smell, you've lost the joy of owning a new car because, wow, new models are out. Did you see that newest? We never can be satisfied, and that's a good thing. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. We've been made for another world. This is Egypt. It's comfortable here in the land of Goshen, but this is Egypt. This isn't where we were designed to be. Matt Proctor says, this is not a design flaw in us. It's a designed flaw. That God purposely designed us with this flaw of not to find satisfaction and to feel at home in this broken world. I know life is not always easy. And we wish life could be easier. As a matter of fact, some people say life is backwards. I don't know who first wrote this. It's attributed to several people, but it's kind of fun. Uh, maybe you've thought of, uh, boy, wouldn't life be great if it was like this? It goes like this. I think the life cycle is all backwards. You should die first and get that out of the way. <laughs> then you live in an old age home, and you get kicked out when you're too young and healthy. <laughs> you get your gold watch, and then you go to work. You work for 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend the last months of your life floating, and you finish off as a gleam in somebody's eye. <laughs> you think, oh, that's the way life ought to be. No. No, it isn't. You see, life here is the way it is supposed to be here, so it gets us ready for life there and if we got too attached here we wouldn't long for there and we couldn't live out our god-given vision and we couldn't be who god has designed us to be i mean how do you want to go into eternity you want to go into eternity thinking oh i kind of miss the old place i'd like to go back to egypt danish philosopher soren kierkegaard wrote he said it's very dangerous to go into eternity with possibilities which one has oneself prevented from becoming realities. A possibility is a hint from God. One must follow it. I don't want to walk through the gates someday and, and the Father come and smile and say, welcome home, but, but you could have done so much more if you hadn't been so comfortable in Egypt. Here's the, here's the good news, people. Where we are headed is the reverse of the second law of thermodynamics. Where everything here progresses toward decay, everything there is renewal and perfect. It's where for the first time in my life, I will be the Tom Ellsworth that God created me to be. And it's where you will be the person that God created you to be. And it's all about pressing on toward that vision and those who have built the vision behind us. I walked in to the auditorium this morning and I saw this picture on the wall over here. You may not be able to see it clearly, but it'll be on the screen here. I, I've seen this picture a lot, and you, you've probably seen it up every once in a while. That, that happened the first Easter that Elsie and I were here. That was uh, Easter of uh, 1981, and there was a uh, 
tradition in the church at that time that any time they broke an attendance record, they would cut off the preacher's tie. And uh, on that first Easter we were here, we broke an attendance record. And I, I don't know how many times I've seen that picture, folks, and it dawned on me this morning, I'm the only one alive who's in that picture. Those three godly men in that picture with me have now gone home to be with the Lord, but they were the men and their families were the folks who were in this church who were keeping this vision alive for the future. And I'm hoping somehow that God pulls back the curtain of eternity and, and, and says to the three of them, hey, Tom, Richard, Bill, come over here. I want you to look and see the church is celebrating 50 years because you never gave up on the vision. And it really isn't about the past 50 years. It's about the next 50 years. For me, it's the next 50 years. So, some anonymous sage put it like this, dissatisfaction and discouragement are not caused by the absence of things, but by the absence of vision. We have a God-given vision that we need to live out. Proverbs says, where there is no vision, the people perish. And I believe that this vision is vital. We, in this 50th year of our anniversary, we've been praying more. We've been serving more because that's been our focus. We've said, this is a year to, 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 to ramp up being people of prayer, to do more with, in the presence of God, to serve more in this community. And here we are at the third prong of this 50-year dream, and that is to pay off our indebtedness so we can do more. It's about the doing. It's about the vision. It's about the completing. It's about the serving. It's about what God can unleash us to become if we aren't captive. Well, do we have to pay off the debt? No. No, we don't. Can we handle the debt in our budget? Yeah, actually we can. We, we've been doing that. Well, then what's the big deal? Well, what's the big deal? I'll tell you what the big deal is. There is a burden that keeps us from being everything that God wants us to be. It's like, well, we're comfortable here. Can I tell you the easiest thing in the world for me would be to say, you know what, things are pretty good shape here at the church. I think I'm just going to coast out, you know, down the road. A few years from there, I, I can probably retire, and, and I think things are going well enough that I could do that. That's the easiest thing for me to do. That's the last thing I want to do. I don't want to coast I want this church to become everything that she can be, that she's been in the past and even more so in the future. What's the big deal? I'll tell you the big deal. I want to be unleashed from a burden so that we can do some things that are significant and incredible and, and beyond anybody's wildest dreams and, and imagination. For me, it's time to be free. Debt is a captor that enslaves us, and I'm one who's ready to leave Egypt. Why do this? Take a look at the picture of our high school youth group behind me. They've moved into the fellowship hall because there's no room left for them down in that building there. They have grown and they are excited and they are thrilled and they go in there on Sunday morning and they, worship, uh, they do their class in there and then they set it up so that there's worship at 11 o'clock in there and, and they are pumped and I'm here to tell you, I, I want that's the group I love because they're the, they're the church just right behind us. They're, they're going to take over the leadership roles and I want them to be the strongest that they can be. I want to equip them and support them and encourage them and lift them up and do everything we can to make sure their faith endures through the storms that weather and, and we can't do as much for them because we're spending four hundred thousand dollars a year on interest and a dab on principle why 
Why, we can make an even greater difference in this community through more uh, activities like CareFest and the backpack projects and many of those things like that we do. We could do more of those things that would enhance the life in this community if we didn't spend $400,000 a year on interest and a dab on principal. Why? Because every week that I serve here and our staff serves here, there are people that walk through the doors of this building with brokenness and heartache and needs. And there are not enough financial resources, there's not enough counseling resources, there's not enough support resources to help everyone who comes through that door hurting in an adequate manner. But we could do a lot more if we weren't spending $400,000 on interest and a dab on principal. Why? Did you see the wall out in the foyer? Elsie and I saw that at the North American Christian Convention this past year. I wish we had a place, we don't even have a place in our building where we could put it all together. We had to divide it by the doorway here. So it starts over here and it ends over here. And, and we saw that it's unleashed to reach the unreached people groups. And Elsie said, we need, to, we need to bring that to Sherwood Oaks. And I agreed, and so we did. I, if you haven't stopped to look at that, take a look at that. Do, do you know on there, in fine print, are over seven thousand people groups who have no light of the testimony of Jesus Christ in their midst. There is no church. There's no message for them to find Jesus Christ. Over 7,000 people groups. And we sit here in our comfort when there is a world out there who doesn't know that there's a better place that they could be going, that they weren't designed for the brokenness of this world if they could find Jesus Christ. Pray about the people on that wall. Why do this? Can I give you three personal reasons? Addison, Landon, and Hayden. For me, heaven won't be complete if they aren't there. And every other parent and every other grandparent in this assembly, if you feel differently than that, I don't understand your spiritual faith at all. I want this church to be stronger healthier, deeper for the coming generations. I want this church 50 years from now to be doing greater things than even we can dream now, but that won't happen if we don't dream now and catch a glimpse of this vision. So I want us to do what the Israelites did. I want us to pray. Next six to eight weeks, I want you to pray hard that God will move this congregation. Number two, I want you to keep growing stronger spiritually. We need to be asking the tough questions of ourselves. What have I really done to make a difference with my life? Am I complacent in my comfort? What kind of a vision has God instilled in my heart? We need to persevere no matter what, stay the course, and we need to trust in a God for the future that we cannot see with our human eyes. He's a God that specializes in the impossible, you know. Follow where he leads. Last evening, I was uh, watching the news and then I was also reading <clears throat> online about the uh, newest ship commissioned by the, the Navy. It is the USS Michael Murphy. It is a 510-foot <clears throat> destroyer, commissioned on this weekend, by the way, named after Navy Lieutenant Michael Murphy, who is the first Medal of Honor recipient from the Afghanistan War, received it posthumously. The story is inspirational. Michael, who already was wounded with his squad, steps out 
into the clearing so that they can get a signal with the radio to call for help, knowing that as he steps out into the clearing to get the signal, he is an easy target. And so with the last breaths of his life, he calls for help to try and save his comrades, his men, at the cost of his own life. I, I read the story with great interest and thought, you know, every American needs to know the sacrifice of this young man. And then it was just like a board hit me in the forehead. Everybody in the world needs to know the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. What Michael Murphy is to the United States, Jesus Christ is for the world. And Michael's sacrifice, though great, pales in comparison to what Jesus Christ did. That's why, that's why, folks, we cannot afford to become complacent because Jesus Christ died for us and we need to make sure that as many people as possible know him before it's time to go home. You see, this isn't home. We've been designed for a far greater place.